Welcome to episode 98 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. I'm joined today by our special guest, uh, who is also an alumna uh, of Steptoe and Johnson. She was a cybersecurity lawyer here. Melanie Toplinski is now, however, a professor at American University, a member of the advisory board for CrowdStrike. Uh, uh, Melanie, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Nice to be here. And uh, our, among our regulars, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, Alan Cohn, uh, former head of strategy for DHS and second in charge of the policy office there, now of counsel of Steptoe and Johnson. And uh, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA DHS, record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. This is the digging out uh, uh, episode. Uh, uh, we had two and a half feet roughly of snow uh, in D.C., um, and so practically everybody uh, is doing it uh, um, by phone rather than uh, coming to the office to do it. Uh, uh, But I'm here, even though I have to say I spent an entire day digging out my driveway. Uh, um, Let's get started. Uh, Safe Harbor is making news at Davos. If this weren't the digging out edition, this would be the Davos edition of our uh, uh, podcast. Uh, um, And the news seemed to be, if I was reading it right, uh, uh, Michael, was that uh, 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 the Commerce Department, the Secretary of Commerce, uh, Penny Pritzker, uh, who seems to be leading the talks, uh, basically said, yeah, we put a really good offer on the table. It's time for Europe just to uh, take it. Um, And she got a certain amount of pushback from various parts of the European Commission saying, "Uh, there's more we want from you on oversight and transparency. Uh, This is is a bad sign, my guess is, uh, um, for at least a period of time, uh, because I think the U.S. feels it's given all it needs to give or wants to give, and it's... uh, uh, it's up to Europe to make some hard decisions to uh, uh, to take the deal. Um, and uh, my guess is, I don't know about you, Michael, but I don't think the European Commission is strong enough to take a hard deal, to, to make hard decisions. Uh, they, uh, they, they've got second guessers in the Article 29 working party. They've got uh, uh, the European Parliament. Uh, uh, all of them are going to say this deal is no good, no matter what's in the deal. We could, we could turn the National Security Agency over to Brussels, and they'd still say it wasn't a good enough deal. Well, I hate to say I told you so, but, but I love to say I told you so. <laughs> I mean, this, the, the idea that they would ever make this January 31st deadline was something I never thought was... Um, Realistic, uh, and I think the Commerce Department has been um, incredibly overly optimistic in thinking that they can just throw a couple of bones the EU's way and overcome massive uh, skepticism about the U.S.'s willingness to actually make fundamental changes in in its surveillance laws, which it's not willing to do. So the U.S. side thinks that it can do a couple of little things with the uh, with the Privacy Act have a little more transparency by executive order, I guess, or something, and and that'll take care of the problem. And that's just, to me, that's a fundamental misreading of, of uh, at least the way European officials interpret the um, European Court of Justice's decision on safe harbor. So I think there's still just a big disconnect. It's not even a, a gap in, in their negotiating positions. I think there's a fundamental disconnect in what what's necessary to get around the, the Schrems ruling. Yeah, I'm, I'm influenced by the fact, I wrote something about this so, uh, uh, recently over the weekend uh, while I was snowed in, and, and uh, the fact is Europe has gone to the brink of imposing data embargoes at, at least a dozen times uh, uh, in the last 15 years. It's practically a, a, a regular annual occurrence. And they've never pulled the trigger. They've never jumped off the, the, the brink uh, uh, because um, uh, this is a much better threat 
than it is an actual um, uh, uh, weapon. Uh, it's sort of like uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, if he ever lets them off, he'll, 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 it'll be the end of him. Uh, and uh, he knows it. He'd rather rattle the saber than use it. And I suspect that's true here, that the Europeans know that actually trying to cut off data flows is going to result in massive disobedience because uh, nobody can actually make their companies run without uh, moving the data. Well, and, and, and there's no real threat of cutting off data flows because that's not what the consequence is of missing the January 3rd, uh, 31st self-imposed deadline. If, the, if there's no safe harbor two by January 31st, it just means that at the worst, data protection authorities will start investigating companies to see what the basis is that they're relying on for transferring data to the U.S. Right. If they previously relied on Safe Harbor, they better have instituted uh, contracts containing the model contract clauses. If they haven't, then they're clearly in violation. If they have instituted the model clauses, then the next step is the data protection authorities will have to say, well, we still think that's actually a violation of EU data protection directive and, and other EU uh, laws, and we're going to we're going to uh, basically start a case that will have to go to the ECJ, and the ECJ is going to have to say the model contract clauses are invalid. That's a long way off from, from ever happening, even if everything goes right from the, from the privacy advocate's uh, position. So, so no, no data is going to stop flowing as long as companies have, have instituted the model clauses or, in, in rare instances, relied on binding corporate rules instead. I think, I think generally right. that's right. Go ahead. I think generally that's right. Um, there have been, as you know, the German CPAs have said that they may go after companies that are using the model contract clauses, but there are some scenarios where there isn't a good alternative to the safe harbor. You know, there are no model clauses for certain types of transfers, for example, when an EU-based processor of data is transmitting to a non-EU-based subprocessor. Uh, so there are companies, I think, for which this is a greater problem than for others. But I think generally speaking, I agree with your point that um, there have been for a long time alternatives in place, and most large companies have seen the writing on the wall for a long time and have been preparing for this moment. So one of the things that uh, I said in this article uh, uh, that I wrote, uh, which was a lot of fun, and I've I've gotten some very uh, enthusiastic responses, uh, was that uh, this has been a weapon that the EU has used only against the United States. Uh, It has either found other countries to be adequate uh, after negotiations or it has simply not had any cases, not pursued any cases uh, against uh, other countries. And this is kind of remarkable when you consider that uh, um, uh, among the top ten um, uh, countries doing business with Europe uh, are uh, Algeria and Russia and China uh, and Saudi Arabia, none of them exactly paradise for human rights uh, campaigners. Uh, uh, And yet uh, nobody has ever suggested that there's a problem with data transfers to those countries. uh, and so my my suggestion, uh, uh, and it's uh, uh, I think it's going to happen, is that we create a prize uh, and give ten thousand dollars to the first person or group that files against the ten largest non-U.S. Um, uh, trading partners of Europe in three different jurisdictions in uh, uh, in the EU and forces the EU to actually live up to the, their claims that they're defending human rights around the world as opposed to just exercising their anti-American muscles. Uh, um, and I think that's quite doable. Uh, I, and I've already had people indicate that they want to uh, um, share their 501c3 uh, uh, status so that people can make tax-deductible and anonymous donations to this prize. Uh, uh, and I'm quite hopeful that uh, we will have the prize up and running sometime in the next month, uh, just in time for the collapse of the safe harbor talks. So I, it, it, silence is a scent. So, Michael, uh, if you think this is crazy, uh, you better speak up. <laughs> I think all your ideas are crazy. <laughs> all right. Melanie, can, can, I, can I hit you up for 10 bucks? <laughs> 
Oh, talk to my corporate sponsors. <laughs> oh, well, they, they would be very interested in the anonymous uh, option, I'm sure. <laughs> All corporate sponsors will be. Uh, all right. Uh, but, but I will say, you, you, you know, but you, you do make an interesting point, though, as to what the European Union is doing. I mean, one question is, are we inadequate as opposed to the, uh, in, in comparison to the European Union? Right? Oh, I mean, yeah. When, uh, when Snowden revealed what intelligence agencies around the world were doing, he included European intelligence agencies. Well, and that, that to me, is the most important thing in, the, in this whole affair, and that, to me, is the case the U.S. should be pressing, um, rather than trying to come up with window-dressing changes, uh, is, is make the case that what the ECJ demands is um, that U.S. law be... Uh, basically equivalent to the protections offered under European law. And I think that that case can be made and that U.S. protections are actually superior to European protections. I, if I were, you know, the, the Secretary of Commerce, I'd be making that case aggressively. Uh, yeah. And the EC should be making that case aggressively, too. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think they have made it. And, it, it you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, you know, being a conservative, I, I know how resistant to facts people uh, with a different ideological point of view can be, because uh, uh, I see it all the time. Uh, and, uh, and, and I see that with the Europeans. They, they hear it, and they just they can't believe it. They can't process it, uh, because it's so inconsistent with their view of the, this as a country of cowboys uh, invading countries and uh, locking people up without trial. Uh, uh, and so the idea that the U.S. might actually be more skeptical about government surveillance than um, uh, European uh, countries just won't compute and it won't stick in their heads. They're privacy denialists. <laughs> That's right. The, the science is settled. They should recognize that uh, uh, they've they've just lost this debate. Uh, maybe we could have them prosecuted as deniers uh, uh, yeah. for, for for refusing to acknowledge the uh, the truth that uh, uh, can be demonstrated just by reading the statutes. Uh, um, all right, I I I love that idea. Um, Okay, um, moving on. Uh, I'm going to come back and talk a little bit about the Judicial Redress Act, which is the one piece of progress that's being made, but we'll we'll save that for later. Uh, Let's talk about some real law. Uh, Michael, uh, uh, insurance coverage is a hot topic, but all we really – for for cyber events – but we see more litigation over lack of coverage for events. And and there was another – $480,000 loss that uh, a company was claiming should have been covered by their insurer. Uh, and I wondered if you could t- tell us how significant this is in terms of understanding insurance law and cyber. Yeah, well, this, it's, it's interesting because, you know, uh, cyber insurance is still relatively new, and I think this, the scope of the policies uh, and what they really cover is, uh, is still kind of, uh, up in the air and, and very fuzzy, and naturally insurance companies are going to resist some some claims on insurance policies. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think it's going to be a couple of years till things get, get fleshed out a little bit about exactly what the terms mean. But this is an interesting case because it's an instance of what's become known as business email compromise or CEO fraud. Uh, so in this case, somebody pretending to be the CEO of a company in Texas called AF Global Corp. Uh, emailed the uh, the head of accounting, director of accounting, and said, um, you know, I need uh, confidential treatment of, of a transfer of nearly a half a million dollars. You're going to get a call from our outside uh, attorney uh, who will give you more information. Then the director of accounting was contacted by someone pretending to be the accountant saying, you know, we're done with the due diligence we needed to, to do. Uh, so you need to wire $480,000 to a bank in China. And the director of accounting um, basically followed through. He got another email with the wiring instructions, followed through. And he didn't get suspicious until he got a second request to wire an, uh, an, another uh, installment of $18 million. And that's when they realized they'd been scammed. So they, they filed a claim with their insurer, a unit of Chubb called Federal Insurance, and Federal Insurance has denied the claim, saying um, this isn't covered by the policy. The policy covers forgery of financial instruments, 
but these emails and phone calls aren't financial instruments. Uh, to be a financial instrument, it's got to be something like uh, a, a check or a, or a draft, uh, some sort of negotiable instrument. So, so that's the issue. So what's interesting about that, and Alan, uh, jump in, uh, is it's not really cyber insurance that, that we're talking about here. It's insurance against forgery, uh, uh, forged uh, um, uh, financial instruments. And so the real question is uh, whether an email should be treated as a financial instrument. I think that's one point, and, um, and I think that that's right, um, that at the end of the day, a lot of these things come down to um, – non-cyber specific uh, issues. However, in this case, the other thing that was that I thought was interesting here is that either the, you know the, the, the question may be is an email a negotiable instrument um, or you know you could you could say on the one hand the cyber insurance policies are having a hard time keeping up with the various types of ways that people conduct scams in, instead of offering a check to be deposited, they're now asking for money to be wired, which is, which seems odd. Or the other way is that the the cyber insurance policies are being uh, are being written in a very specific way to include specific things and not others. And in this case, um, it seems like the language is written in such a way that the insurer expects the person in the loop to act as a failsafe. So in this case, the director of accounting is essentially held to be responsible for verifying the truth of the email. And for not instructing the bank to make transfers um, on the basis of that uh, of that email, um, where the insurer said in, in some of the correspondence going back and forth that if if it had been the 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 other party that had fraudulently instructed the bank to make the transfer, um, then that would have been covered under the under the policy. But because there was a person from the company in the middle, um, the person was in the loop. Um, that doesn't qualify under under the language of the of the policy. So, I one of the things that I was struck by here, and maybe it's a little hard to tell from the facts, but it sounds as though these these guys actually knew quite a bit about the relationship between the CFO and the CEO, uh, um, which suggests to me that um, uh, we've all, we've been worried about the advanced persistent threat of being nation states sitting in people's networks and stealing stuff. But uh, if you sit in the network and steal information uh, as a crook, it makes you a much more effective crook. Uh, if you know that the CEO and the CFO uh, have a good informal relationship and money moves and, uh, as a result of emails, then you just copy the form of the last email that was a legitimate one uh, and ask uh, for more money to move. Uh, and uh, that uh, uh, that's the kind of intelligence that you only get if you're in the network for a while. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And, you know, I think I think companies really need to batten down the hatches when it comes to um, financial controls. I mean, the idea of of wiring nearly half a million dollars based on uh, an informal email is, is um, I find, a little bit surprising. But then again, I, you know, I don't work in a big corporation. Maybe that's common, but it struck me as, as uh, pretty surprising. It also struck me as possibly some artful defensive pleading um, to explain exactly, my, you know, Michael's interpretation of why in the world is the director of accounting making this transfer on the basis uh, of an email. But, but again, it's a cautionary tale to anyone who has the authority to order the transfer of funds to be highly skeptical um, of communications like this, uh, especially in this day and age. Well, speaking of cautionary tales, uh, especially that um, uh, if we have somebody from CrowdStrike's advisory board uh, on the call, uh, a, um, a security provider has gotten sued uh, by the uh, by its customer uh, because I guess the security provider was checking over the network, said looks okay to us at the same time that the hacker was still. In it, if I understand it, uh, uh, and uh, the customer has now sued the security provider, claiming that what uh, well, he did a bad job. It couldn't have been CrowdStrike. <laughs> it it was not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a this is a really interesting case. Um, and so, Affinity Gaming, uh, which operates casinos down on the Nevada California line, and one in Sparks, Nevada, and then one in Las Vegas. 
Um, found a breach uh, on its own based on reports uh, of fraudulent credit card activities. It contacted its cyber insurance carrier, which was ACE, and then ACE gave Affinity a panel of breach response companies uh, uh, to to look at to respond to the breach, and one of those was Trustwave, uh, a Chicago-based cybersecurity company. Um, Affinity hired Trustwave. Trustwave came in um conducted a professional forensic data security investigation, uh, and then gave a report back to uh, to Affinity saying it completed its investigative report, it had identified and contained the compromise, uh, and it identified a backdoor within the company's code base, but it characterized that backdoor uh, as inert, that the, the actors had been pulling it out and it wasn't being used. So Trustway, or so Affinity was very happy with that. Um, they notified their um, the various folks they had to notify. They went along, and then the Missouri Gaming Commission requires that you do periodic penetration testing. So Trustwave hired EY to come in and perform penetration testing. And during that activity, uh, EY found uh, suspicious activity, including some of the malware program that Trustwave had found but not remedied. Affinity then hired Mandiant, came in, conducted its own professional forensic data investigation, uh, discovered additional active backdoors, uh, including within Affinity's virtual private network. And that caused Affinity to do a second round of notifications to customers and credit card companies and regulators, et cetera, uh, essentially um, either having to represent that they that they found a second breach or that they had not um, fully uh, discovered the the scope of the initial breach. And so Affinity brought suit against Trustwave for a range of, uh, of common law and statutory uh, uh, actions, including uh, fraudulent inducement, fraud and constructive equitable fraud, misrepresentation, uh, gross negligence, and breach of contract. Wow. So we're going to see more of these, I assume, because it's almost impossible to be sure you've, you've, you've gotten the bad guys out of your network. There's always a possibility that they are more sophisticated than you or that they're using a tool you haven't seen before. Um, so uh, my guess is uh, Affinity, having spent a lot of money and probably lost a lot of money because they're a, a casino, uh, uh, felt uh, we paid you to get these guys out. And if you didn't get them out, then uh, you didn't do the job. Yes, uh, exactly. So, and I think that we uh, that we will see a lot of that. The other thing is, in addition to the money that they had to physically spend to get them out of the network, um, the reputational uh, damages or challenges associated with that um, uh, the company alleged in the complaint were were almost as great in terms of the actual reputational harm of having to go back to the banks and back to the credit card companies, back to their customers, um, and in particular back to the regulators. And say, uh, well, we, you know, we had told you that it was all under uh, taken care of and under control, but in fact, it was not, and now we're having to do this all again. So, wouldn't you think that from now on, if you represent a uh, security provider, your standard service contract, because these things have to be signed usually within 24 hours, it's not like they're getting enormous amounts of review, will include an arbitration clause for a start, a confidential arbitration clause, uh, maybe a, uh, a limitation of damages that says uh, we'll give you back your money and that's the extent of our liability. You'd think that there would be drafting solutions for some of these problems. Yes, along with, along with the termite treatment model, the, uh, you know, much more specific warrants of what uh, what is being searched and what is not, what's being remedied and what is not, what the limits of that uh, of that can be. Um, yes, the uh, the underlying contract between uh, that governs these things is, is is one of the places that should prompt a lot of scrutiny. Okay, um, a, and um, speaking of people who are kind of surprisingly getting themselves into trouble the FBI is uh, has now filed something uh, uh saying uh, that uh, yeah it ran a uh, a child porn uh, uh site uh, for a couple of weeks uh and it's not going to apologize for that that's how it caught the uh, people that it is now prosecuting who of course through their lawyers are saying this is a shocking thing uh, that the FBI would uh uh, sell the stuff that they wanted to buy. Um, uh, uh, Michael, did you have a chance to look uh, more deeply at that one? 
Yeah, I did. And, you know, at first blush, wow, it sounds outrageous. But then when you actually read about the case and realize this was the only effective way for the FBI to identify people who were participating in this child pornography network, you realize, you know, I don't really have a problem with this. If This is the only way they could do it. So essentially the FBI took over uh, a child porn site called Playpen, um, which is accessible only on the on the dark web uh, to Tor users. So the FBI could not identify the actual computers of these users uh, without taking over the network and then implanting malware on the computers of the, the users so that it could figure out their true IP addresses. And so it basically operated the site for 13 days and identified, I think, something like a 1,000 users and ultimately indicted 137 of them. Uh, and then uh, my understanding is they, they took the whole network down. Um, seems to me if that's if that's the only way they could identify these people and make cases uh and more power to them uh because if they hadn't done this they could have just shut the network down but it just would have moved to another site yeah uh, and you know they they wouldn't have been able to to make any arrests so um i don't really see uh the controversy in this so much uh there there are some interesting issues fourth amendment issues about um the way they got warrants to uh, to use this whole network investigative technique um, that, that allows them to spread malware to computers, uh, you know, whose location and identity they don't know in advance. Um, but that's that's different from you know whether this was a, an appropriate investigative tactic to, to run this network for 13 days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. They're, they're really counting on a doctrine that says if, if, the, if law enforcement does something just that shocks the conscience, then uh, uh, the uh, evidence ought to be excluded. And I think you're right. It doesn't exactly shock the conscience. It might if they, if they went out and set up their own and advertised it and collected a bunch of uh, um, images that otherwise weren't available. Uh, but that's not what they did. Exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, they, they basically just kept the thing up and running using the same in- images um, that had already been on it. None of these were government-supplied images. All right. One more kind of uh, real law uh, topic uh, is, uh, and this just keeps coming up and it will forever, or at least until the Supreme Court rules, uh, is how much injury you need to to actually have a data breach cause of action uh, uh, for a class action. And uh, there was a pretty thoughtful opinion, I thought, out of Minnesota that uh, I think you looked at, right, Michael? I did, yeah, and, and this is um, a case involving the, the grocery uh, chain SuperValue, which uh, in 2014 had a couple of data breaches that resulted in the potential theft of payment card information of its customers. Uh, so a class action was, was filed, uh, raising a bunch of allegations uh, of alleged harm, and the court basically d- dismissed all the allegations uh, without prejudice, so they can come back and, and try to replead. But essentially the court said that the, the alleged injury of risk of future harm, you know, uh, the concern that, that there would be future identity theft, was not enough uh, to establish uh, standing because there had actually been uh, alleged only one claim of fraudulent use of a card. And given that the breaches were nearly two years ago, uh, the court said that that's just too speculative, the idea that, that other people would have fraudulent charges that, that wouldn't get reimbursed by their banks. Um, more interesting to me, the, the court also rejected two claims that are becoming more popular among plaintiffs. One is that the value of their, of their personal information had been diminished because of the, the breach. And the court didn't say that that was an illegitimate theory. It just said, uh, basically, that if you're going to make that sort of uh, a claim, you've got to allege facts that at least explain uh, how your your personal information became less valuable as a result of the breach. Um, you know, it's not like you were trying to market your personal information and, and uh, buyers were willing to pay less for your for your PII. Um, so I think you know, plaintiffs are going to have to be a little bit more creative and not just throw that theory out there, but but back it up with some some facts to show how their PII uh, lost value. And, and similarly, it rejected the, the lost benefit of the bargain theory in which plaintiffs come and say, you know, look, when I bought uh, my groceries, I, I thought part of what I was buying was adequate data security for my payment card information. And since SuperValue didn't provide that, that security, uh, I did not get the value of, 
what I paid for, the full value. And there again, the court said there, there was no allegation that um, the, the value of the groceries had somehow been reduced or that the price paid for the groceries actually included an amount that both parties understood would go towards uh, data protection. So I think if you know, the, there's a chance the plaintiffs could come back with more specific allegations and the court would approve them. But it, it, it seemed pretty skeptical of both theories. Well, I, 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 and I have to express some skepticism about this idea that you, you've suffered a diminution in the value of your personal data. What, Facebook has said they're suspending your account because all the data they're getting from you is, isn't worth as much now that you've been compromised in this way? <laughs> you know, it's just silly. Yeah, that would, that, would be a good, that would be a good allegation. Of course, it would never, it would never uh, be true. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, this this issue will keep going because it's what it takes to uh, to hang on to a class action. Yeah. I mean, you know, plaintiffs' lawyers are being creative as as they they always are in in new areas. Uh, and until we get a Supreme Court ruling or at least uh, some consensus among courts of appeals on whether these are valid theories or not, I think we're going to continue to see district courts going um, both ways, basically, depending on on how well the cases are pled. Uh, and some plaintiff right. lawyers are, are better than others at, at doing this. Melanie? Mike, that's right. And most courts at this, mo- most courts at this point have held, um, just like the Minnesota court, that the mere risk of an ID theft without more isn't enough for standing. Um, but there have been some cases, I think it was the Seventh Circuit and a handful of other courts, have held that even, you know, an increased susceptibility to future injury was enough. So the idea was that, right, if you had the potential to have a future in- injury, um, because of this uh, loss of, of PII, then that could be enough. And in those cases, um, there have been a series of decisions. I think it was Neiman Marcus and others, um, but but they are certainly the minority. And most case, most courts are following the original Clapper case, which was the seminal case in this area, which was in, in the national security context, not in the data breach context. But it was a case in which the Supreme Court did rule and held that plaintiffs did not have standing to um, to bring an action. So I can't help thinking of the Lab MD case where the ALJ basically said nobody suffered any harm. There's, there's no evidence that this information was used by anybody uh, other than the company that uh, uh, used it for its testimony to Congress. Uh, um, and so the FTC shouldn't be suing for unfair practices to uh, uh, to consumers because uh, consumers have suffered no harm. I, uh, we, we're likely to see some of these cases cited uh, at the FTC appeal as well. Yes. And the FTC takes, a, takes a, a, a different approach, though, too. They say, you know, we're not required to show concrete harm. Um, these, these, these standing requirements under Article 3 don't apply to us when we take an administrative enforcement action, and the risk of harm is, is enough. Uh, so they're, so that, they're staking out an, an even more aggressive claim, right. uh, I, I think, than, than plaintiffs in the civil suits. Well, because they have so many resources and there are so few actual breaches that, of course, you'd expect them to go beyond investigating every actual breach to also go into potential breaches uh, uh, and behavior that hasn't hurt anybody yet. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that makes lots of sense. Oh, wait, wait. Internet. And rely and rely on manufactured evidence. Don't forget about that part. <laughs> but but yeah. this is good because it bolsters our claims that the EU has adequate that the US has adequate data protection, right? That's right. They're Excellent every bit point. as high handed as the uh, data protection authorities of Europe. Okay. Well, you know, I I, I hate to say this, but. Even I am getting a little tired of the encryption debate, uh, and yet, uh, despite Silicon Valley's constant refrain that the you know the science is settled and uh, you can't argue with the math and this debate is over, right? uh, encryption is everywhere. Uh, the debate just won't go away. Uh, and it, it was in Davos, I think. Uh, uh, AT&T executives said, you know, I kind of think encryption policy ought to be made by Congress and not by a few companies in Silicon Valley, which was sort of a, a, a breaking with, uh, uh, among others, Apple, which is a big commercial uh, uh, partner of, of AT&T's, uh, uh, and, and a break in the industry wall of support for um, whatever the companies want to do. Uh, but that's that's not the only, uh, uh, the, that, that was a little odd, and so was um, the fact that uh, the NSA director uh, actually said, you know, I, I'm a big fan of encryption. I think it's foundational for security. So we had a bunch of people 
playing against type uh, over the last week, uh, uh, and the states got into it. I know, Melanie, you you followed the New York case, so the New York uh, legislation. There's some California legislation saying you can't sell um, encrypted phones here if you can't unencrypt them. Correct. Right. They're seeking to, uh, to uh, enact a bill that would say that uh, you ban the sale of smartphones like the iPhone whose encryption can't be bypassed by the manufacturer. Now, I, I can't help saying, you know, uh, Michael always reminds me that anybody, or well, at least anybody in the legislature, can introduce a bill, and that doesn't mean we should pay attention to it. Uh, <laughs> uh, is there any prospect that uh, the world's, the two most liberal large legislatures in the country are going to uh, decide to uh, uh, vote against uh, Apple and Google and uh, uh, Facebook on these issues? I, I don't think it's possible to get less than a 0% chance, but if there were, um, that's, that's the, the odds that I would give. Uh, I agree. Okay. So this these are... These are um, these are yeah okay and 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 the, the the people who are covering them are covering them just because it gives them another chance to rewrite to, to write the same story which is always easier than writing a new one um i i, I kind oh, of yeah it's, speaking of which you know every time we talk about the, the encryption and the latest development i just have i just have a flashback to the 90s and and the statement by the nsa director just instantly brought to mind the, the meeting in the white house and i vividly remember this um where the NSA basically uh, gave up the ship um, of trying to, uh, you know, push a key escrow policy to, to foster the, the spread of key escrow that the government could, could get a key to if it needed, um, and basically left law enforcement standing uh, on its own trying to, trying to continue to push that policy. And it just seems like a remarkably parallel um, development here, where NSA has no trouble with, with strong encryption, it's got it figured out. It's a lot harder for law enforcement to deal with. Yeah. I, was, I think that's was, right. I think, you know, the National Security Agency has to deal with both sides of this problem, dealing with protecting U.S. communications as well as their foreign intelligence mission. And I think for the FBI, it really only has to deal with one side. And so that explains, I think, why you have that, um, that difference. But it also explains why Comey's been out in front on this rather than director of the NSA. So my only question, Michael, I, uh, had I left by the time uh, NSA sold you out, or was I there and part of that? Oh yeah, you, you, yeah, you have your 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 fingerprints are not on that. It was uh, it was nineteen. It was yeah. It was well after you were you were gone. All right. Well, I, uh, I the 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 probably the thing that will keep this going for a long time is there's a surprising amount of congressional interest uh, among fairly influential uh, uh, congressmen in a uh, commission to study the question of what can be done uh, uh, and essentially to put pressure on both sides to compromise on something doable. Uh, uh, and I think uh, Chairman McCall from Homeland Security, uh, uh, Mark, Senator Mark Warner, uh, an influential Democrat with a lot of telecom expertise, seem to be pushing the idea that we ought to get everybody together and give them a six-month deadline and uh, stick them in a room and make them uh, work it out. Uh, um, and we may see legislation like that. It's the kind of thing that, that Congress likes to do when they don't really want to uh, uh, piss off anybody? Yeah, it, you know, it could be it could be useful depending on the composition of the commission. Um, if you get the, the usual suspects from academia and civil liberties groups, um, you know, they're just going to say what we've heard from a million other groups that you know any any backdoor introduces a vulnerability that bad guys will also take advantage of, including totalitarian foreign governments who will insist on the same sort of access. Um, and they won't really give much thought to, okay, well, what's the alternative then? Right. How are we going to give law enforcement the tools it needs to get around unbreakable encryption? Uh, so I, I would just hope they have, if they do form a commission, that they have uh, people who are interested in finding a solution, not just repeating the mantra uh, of the, the people who really uh, don't care about the effects on law enforcement. Well, I, I sometimes tell people that uh, not only did I fight in the crypto wars uh, uh, the first time around, but uh, I got a medal 
but now I, I frankly I think I got PTSD as well. So uh, uh, if I can if I can move on, I'd like to. Uh, the Judicial Redress Act uh, um, is uh, uh, making its way through Congress. It's been passed by the House and uh, is now in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, this is a, a, a part of a deal that the Justice Department did with the Europeans to give them the the one thing, one of the things that they have been uh, asking for for ten years. They think their laws are better than ours uh, because everybody is protected by their laws, their privacy laws, whereas our laws protect American uh, nationals. And so they they have said your law is going to be inadequate for as long as you don't allow. Europeans to bring lawsuits under the Privacy Act. Uh, And the Judicial Redress Act does that. Uh, It was making its way pretty quickly through Congress until the Europeans said, oh yeah, and and no matter what you do on that, we're going to screw you on safe harbor. Uh, And now what I'm hearing is there's a lot of... um, Unease in the Senate about the idea of giving the Europeans this thing that they really want uh, when they are holding all of our companies hostage over uh, the uh, uh, the safe harbor, and so it's my prediction that um, that safe harbor act isn't going to get adopted in the Senate with the same terms that we saw in the House, which kind of paid no attention to this issue, uh, I think foolishly. Uh, um, and uh, uh, my guess is the House will recede uh, and accept further conditionality on the Judicial Redress Act, uh, uh, saying, you know, you're going to get this, but you're not going to get it until you stop holding our company hostage over Safe Harbor, maybe uh, uh, until you stop screwing with our intelligence programs. Melanie, have you followed the uh, Redress Act? I've followed it a little bit, and, um, you know, even um, in its current form, even for those who are in favor of it, it's really a very small step forward um, by itself. There are large exceptions. Many of the programs um, that that folks are concerned about are not actually covered by the Judicial Redress Act. So by itself, I don't think it's a hugely significant piece of legislation, but you're exactly right that the Europeans want it, and they want it rather badly. And so from that perspective, it's very important. Um, but the terms of it as such are not all that important. Um, they, they do provide some redress under specific cir- circumstances, but they deal only with the Privacy Act of 1974. Um, it, you know, it, gives, it gives all citizens the right to redress under that act. So it's dealing with the government's collection and use of personal information. Um, but as I said, it's not hugely consequential uh, in many ways. And so um, while I think the Europeans certainly want it, um, I think from a, from a U.S. perspective, uh, certainly from a U.S. corporate perspective, it, it's really not the big fish in the, in the stream. Yeah, uh, you know, you could... Um uh, there's that old st- saying in government, if you want it bad enough, we can give it to you bad enough. Uh, uh, and, uh, I, I think exactly. the, um, there's, it's distinctly possible that uh, there will be amendments that indicate a uh, an end to Congress's patience or maybe benign neglect uh, of this issue. And uh, if I were the European Commission, I'd say this is not a good sign if – uh, we can't even get that through as negotiated uh, because people are mad about uh, uh, what we're doing. Um, once you get Congress focused on an issue and unhappy with a foreign country, they're going to find other ways to make their unhappiness uh, uh, with that jurisdiction known. So this is uh, – if, if we see conditionality imposed on this act, uh, my bet is there'll be more at, until – um, the U.S. and Europe reach agreement on the safe harbor. Yes. Okay, um, we're going to wrap up, uh, uh, but uh, Alan, uh, uh, one last uh, topic. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, OPM scandal has 
produced a complete new organization for background investigations, uh, and uh, I guess we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that fact. Uh, anything interesting in that uh, in, in the way the uh, the White House has reorganized uh, background investigations? Well, in some ways, it's kind of we're going to reorganize the the thing that we have to be basically the same thing that we had in the sense that we had a federal investigative service. We're now going to have a national background investigation bureau. It's still going to be within OPM. Um, there are a couple of interesting points. It'll have its own presidential appointee as the head, so it'll be, it won't be a, a career civil service, civil servant. Um, it will be in OPM, but its information systems will be handled by the Defense Department. Um, the White House decided not to put the whole bureau into the Defense Department, which some had wanted, but probably much to DOD's relief. Uh, and then there were a couple of other things that were um, mentioned as part of the, a larger plan to reform how federal clearances are done that, that are also um, that are somewhat interesting in terms of um, setting a reinvestigation schedule every five years for everyone, regardless of their level of clearance, and also more uh, continuous vetting of clearance holders. You know, any reorganization isn't really a, it doesn't, reorganizations don't change things, they present the opportunity to change things. So it's really going to be about the, the implementation, what the people who, um, who are put in charge of doing this in the time that they have, that they have left before the new administration, what they want to do and what they're able to do with the platform for, for making meaningful change. So I can't help thinking about the office, not of presidential, of, of personnel management, but of presidential personnel, which uh, uh, oversees the appointment of Schedule Cs around the government. And uh, it, it's a it's a terrible job because everybody is constantly hitting on you. Uh, uh, oh, can you get me this job? Can you get that? And the, the the least qualified people are the most aggressive and obnoxious. And and I imagine somebody in the office of presidential personnel who's been hit up for seven consecutive years by somebody who's gotten less and less popular as they've can resist, resisted the hint that, that they really shouldn't be in the administration, finally saying, oh, yeah, you want a Schedule C appointment? Have we got a job for you? <laughs> you can be responsible for the next OPM breach. <laughs> Right. Um, although we'll have to see if, uh, if you know, with this much time left, if even those folks would want that. I actually thought you were going to go the other way, which is, um, so if we're locking down the Office of Personnel Management now, what about that Office of Presidential Personnel and its computer system? And what about the, the transition offices, the, the transition operation that's run by uh, by GSA out of GSA space in the interregnum period between the election uh, and the inauguration. There's lots of other places where sensitive personal information uh, is floating around in the government, and although locking down the, the SF-86 database and the, and the personnel clearance uh, process at OPM is a huge chunk and really important, uh, shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there are other places where similar type of in, types of information exist. Yeah, well, I'm sure that uh, foreign governments are breaking into the networks of all the candidates to determine what they, they, their view might be toward uh, Kazakhstan or whatever. Uh, uh, and I, I would only note that um, uh, the Republicans have uh, solved that problem uh, by running what you might call honey candidates. There's just dozens of candidates' networks to break into, all of which are going to turn out to be completely irrelevant. Uh, uh, and this allows us to, uh, uh, to to watch their tools, their tactics, and uh, their protocols uh, uh, so that um, if we nominate somebody who doesn't, uh, you know, uh, come up with his uh, campaign strategy on Twitter, uh, we'll be able to, you know, secure that network. Uh, I, uh, Melody, uh, you do, you're, not, you're not obliged to comment on that. Uh, I, I'm just going to keep laughing. <laughs> okay. Melody, thank you so much for coming uh, uh, on the uh, uh, show. We'll bring you back, uh, uh, you know, because you, you're the only one who actually appreciates my jokes. Uh, um, uh, 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 Michael Allen. I knew there was th an upside. <laughs>
Michael and Alan, thank you also for uh, participating and to our audience. So, Melanie, I, I should ask, do you have any uh, uh, speeches you're giving that you want to uh, um, announce here, things people should be watching uh, for? Let's see. The next the next thing I'm doing is at American University, and I apologize. I'm unprepared to give you the date, but it's later this month, and I can send that to you. Okay. And if, then if, um, they, through Christian Science Line, they were running a handful of programs. So I can send you some details offline. Okay. Well, that, and anybody who's interested can just uh, uh, Google Taplinsky and American University and cyber, and they won't have any trouble finding it. Uh, I think I've announced before we're going to be getting on the plane to Israel uh, and giving some uh, speeches uh, Wednesday and Thursday in uh, Israel on cyber and related issues uh, uh, coming back and going to RSA where we will be doing this podcast uh, live and uh, on the stage as well as um, uh, conducting another couple of uh, uh, uh Interviews, and I think I might be signing skating on stilts uh, there. Uh, and then off to South by Southwest, where I will uh, uh, have um, uh, combat flashes from the encryption wars. Uh, so uh, if, you, if you're interested in seeing me uh, uh, live, there's lots of opportunities to do that, and, and also uh, many of our other panel members will be there as well. Uh, uh, Alan, anything you want to add to uh, the, the cavalcade of speeches? No, just to, to plug our, our RSA appearance on uh, Thursday morning at the RSA conference. Come see us live uh, doing the podcast. All right. Uh, and send us your questions, suggestions for interview candidates, etc. Cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave a message by phone, 202-862-5785. Uh, or just leave us a good review on iTunes. Uh, we're really appreciative of uh, uh, all the good reviews we've gotten there. This has been Episode 98, Closing In on 100, of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Coming up uh, in future events, we're going to be joining... Joined uh, uh, by Amit Ashkenazi uh, in uh, Israel. He's an Israeli government official uh, uh, talking about Israeli cybersecurity issues by David Chris, uh, the general counsel of Intellectual Ventures and uh, one of the world's experts on national security law, by Glenn Gerstel, the NSA general counsel, in his maiden um, uh, interview, as far as we know. Uh, uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for all of those events as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 